I want to be LeBron after every season, right? <laughs> uh, because if you if if you believe enough in yourself and you and you think you can continue to generate really good content that will sell, then you want to be a free agent after every contract. Being extraordinary is having a relentless commitment during the unseen hours to work towards mastery of your craft and focus on the fundamentals. Being extraordinary is about doing the little things right every single day. In today's episode, I read between the lines with former Sports Illustrated associate editor and 11-time New York Times bestselling author, Don Yeager. Don is an equally powerful leadership speaker and host of the Corporate Competitor podcast. His sports knowledge is unparalleled, and his book writing process is beyond fascinating. Don has an innate ability to get people to have the courage to open up and be truly vulnerable, and it shows in his work. To say he is a master at his craft would be an understatement. I first met Don at the National Speakers Association's annual influence conference in the summer of 2018 and have been a huge fan of his ever since. Here is my conversation with the incomparable Don Yeager. Well, Don, it's so great to be with you again. And I, I love that we've reversed roles and that you are now in the hot seat because there's so many things I want to learn from you and ask you about. But to start off, would just love to hear what are your thoughts when you hear the word or the phrase unseen hours? So, Alan, I have to tell you, it's that phrase so registered with me when we recorded, when we reversed things and I recorded you as a guest on my podcast that I have it on the wall over there because I wrote it in, in all caps. I, I, I wanted to start thinking about what am I doing in the unseen hours? How am I reflecting on so that I could be my best self during my scene hours? And I started making a list of like, you know, how often am I um, putting in that extra hour in the morning to prepare even though the speech is until 11 o'clock in the morning, like, when am I, am I getting up at five to do that extra hour? And I started realizing how important that is for the days that I'm my best. They're always the days in which I've put that hour in that nobody knows about the hour you can't talk about. Cause it seems awkward to say, Oh, by the way, I got up this morning at 5.00 AM to practice for you. It's the, it's that time window that you do it. That makes yourself available to be able to be seen again and again and again. Ironically, the week after we recorded that podcast, I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And every summer, uh, I let each one of my children pick a week of my travel and they get to travel with that, right? And my son had picked this trip to North Carolina. And so I'm getting ready to give a speech in Raleigh and I'm up early that morning and my son is half asleep. But there I am, you know, practicing my speech. And finally, my son rolled over and he said, Dad, you've given that speech like a thousand times. I've heard it a hundred times. Why are you uh, practicing it? And it was so great because I was able to say, because this is the unseen hour, you know, son, you're like, you know, this is that window. So you, your impact on me. And when I, when I heard that phrase, it really resonated and it meant so much that um, that now I'm fixated on being my best in the unseen hour. I like it a lot. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad. I, I love that. I mean, I originally learned it from my good friend and colleague, Drew Hanlon, and it had the same resonance with me when he told me that about a decade ago. And 
you know, what I'm so fascinated with by you is, I mean, you're, you're, you're the consummate professional in two different domains. I mean, you've got the unseen hours as a world renowned keynote speaker, but you also have the unseen hours that goes into your books. I mean, you're one of the most prolific authors of our time and, and love everything that you put out. So I'd kind of love to dive into both of those. And then I guess a third pillar would almost be some of the things that you've learned from the amazing people that you've written books about, because I know how extensive your research has been and the time that you've spent with them. So to stay organized, let's talk about the keynote speaking first. And you just Thank touched you. on what you do actually preparing for a specific event. But before we hit record, you were kind enough to share some of how you manage your overall schedule and how you, you look at the year as a whole and block off certain times to make sure you can be present at home with your family during unseen hours as well as out on the road and on stages. So elaborate a little bit more about your system for booking and more things that go into the unseen hours of being the tremendous speaker that you are. Well, gosh, thank you. I, I would tell you the thing that, that, and you and I have this in common, we both love the thrill of getting a chance to tell stories in front of people, right? Uh, it's energizing. It is uh, it's empowering. You feel like you're giving something. And if you, if it's going right, then you feel like, you know, that, that they're going to leave better. And so it's very exciting, right? It's that rare place that we can do that. And uh, I got so frankly, kind of addicted to that, that a few years ago, I, I, I will, I, I will admit that I let it get out of control. And I was finding ways to, to manufacture additional dates on the road. If, you know, if I was on the road and, and somebody had a new opportunity for me, I was never saying no, I was always trying to find, and it got out of control to the place that it caused friction in my own household, my own marriage. Uh, and my wife and I, you know, uh, sat down and we, we went through some counseling over the cop, the topic and, and, and ended up in an agreement. Um, that I would never be gone more than three nights in a calendar week. And so we begin the calendar week on a Sunday and there's no more than three nights in that week that I can be away from the family. Now, if the family's traveling with me, different thing, but no more than three nights in a calendar week. And in fact, in a, when a week goes to the third night in my office, the week goes red on the calendar so that no one can add additional travel to my schedule. So we just had to, we had to learn to be, to create our own levels of discipline in order to create um, discipline in a place where I would love to be out there doing it, but I needed not to be because it wasn't good for the unseen hours at home. If no one told you yet, you're a genius and an artist. Let me be the first. I mean, there's so much there that I respect and admire. First and foremost, the acknowledgement and the awareness to realize that, that you were so caught up in your passion of what you love to do that it was detracting from other areas that you know were important. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and applaud your vulnerability to share that, you know, in such a, a public way. And I also, because I'm a systems and processes guy, I love that you've systematized that and said, hey, here, here's how it's going to work. Calendar week starts on a Sunday. If I'm booked for more than three days, it goes red. It would be impossible for someone to book me moving forward. And, and find a way to manage that. So really major kudos to you for putting that in place. And uh, I think your family will reap the benefits of that. Um, and the beautiful part is, I mean, you're already in such high demand. This is gonna make you an even more demand 
because now there's a scarcity component and people know that there's only 60 times a year that we can get the great Don Yeager on our stage. So I actually think that's going to help your business and you'll, you'll be able to keep raising your fees and keep getting on bigger stages because of that scarcity. So I think it's going to work brilliantly for you in every area. Well, thank you. Most importantly, it's where it, my wife has been right. It has made a difference at home. And, um, you know, I, I love nothing more as I did this morning, taking my kids to school and um, and getting a chance to start the day in conversation with them. So it's awesome. Yeah. And, and similar to the point you made earlier to your son, I've had the same conversation with my kids and, and really my my what I said back to them was, you know, Steph Curry's made a few free throws in his day. He still shoots them every single day. He still practices them every single day. I mean, he's he's logged more hours putting up shots than most people have in their area of expertise, but he never stops because that's what keeps him at the top. And it, it's the same thing for me. No matter how many times I've told a, a certain keynote or even a specific story, I want to keep it fresh. And, and I do believe that the, the, the more we can pour into those unseen hours, the better off we'll be when those bright lights come on. Totally agree. So no, I, I'm I'm so grateful that I had the chance to learn that from you, and and uh, and now even put a little more focus into what do I do during those hours. For sure. Anything else under the umbrella of the keynote speaking that you can think of in regards to unseen hours or anything else that you do as far as your approach or perspective? You know, the other thing that has really been that I think surprises people, and yeah, my guess is it's just as true for you. When I decided, when I left Sports Illustrated. And I decided I wanted to become a speaker. I wanted to try this. It's a whole different skill set, right? To learn how to tell stories from a stage. Um, I went out and hired coaches to get to where I could be good enough to do it. I hired coaches to work with me. And I still work with one of those coaches today. Still, whenever I get a recorded speech or as often as I can, A, I watch those speeches like game film. You know, I actually uh, look for what worked, what didn't. Uh, and then at, at certain stages, I ship that speech to the coach and we'll review it together, looking for ways we can get better, ways I can, you know, what what registered, what 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 might I try a little differently the next time I do it. And it's a constant iteration, right? There's no sense of, uh, I, I, I think if you start uh, entering into a, position of stasis, right? Where you're the same, I've got it, I'm done. Then you are done and uh, and we're not done. You're the smartest guy I ever met. Never, never. We'll always be works in progress and under construction. And I love that you break down the game film. And when you're doing that, are you looking both um, through a content lens and through a delivery lens? Or are you yes, saying, hey, both. okay. So I'm often looking to say, did that line, I inserted a line for some reason, and, I, and it would be very intentional, right? I would have tried to, I'm trying to break up the moment a little bit, maybe create some humor. Well, but nobody laughed. But guess what? I thought it was funny, but I'm not the audience. If the audience didn't laugh, then it, was, then it wasn't effective. Try something new. So constantly looking at, um, at how, uh, what did that pause did? Am I pausing well enough? Am I giving them a chance to, to fully understand it? I mean, it is everything about it, as you understand, as you know, everything about it is intentional, right? It's about how do you, when you're really trying to deliver something at its best, there's, there's a lot of intention. So I, the flip side to intention is, is review and making sure that you're trying to be um, best in class. 
And one of my favorite parts of that is it is a different perspective when we're actually on the stage giving the presentation and we're looking at the audience versus how it's seen by them. And, and when we get to watch ourselves on film, and I know for myself, sometimes that can be almost a little painful, especially very early in my career, but it, it lets me see myself through the same lens at which they saw me. And it some things become so much more obvious during film. I mean, there have been times where I thought to myself, you know, hey, I, I really nailed that presentation. And it's not to say that I didn't, but when I go back and watch the game tape, I see so many areas, little nuances that I could have improved and, and right. hold that pause for just a little longer or show a little more warmth and smile. I know when I first started, my biggest issue was I always had coach face on and I always looked like I was angry and it was almost like I was yelling at the audience because that was kind of the persona I had when I was in the training space. Was it resting coach face? It was definitely resting coach face. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't until I could see myself on film that it actually connected the dots that, hey, I, I want to be warmer. I want to smile more. I want to show them I'm having fun because I thought I was having fun, but it wasn't until I saw myself on film that I was like, it doesn't look like I'm having fun. So it gives us a whole different lens and perspective when we can see ourselves. Yep. I love it. And again, I think that's just such a great lesson. Whatever it is you do, if you have a chance uh, to, to, to uh, an opportunity to review yourself, um, you know, go back and do that. Right. I mean, in, in the military, they call them after action reports. I mean, they come back and they, they're constantly evaluating. I had a chance to spend a bunch of time with the blue angels and I was there with them and, and, and post post conversation or post, you know, they were, they spent the, you know, an hour uh, talking about how they walked to the plane. Right? You know? And I thought, isn't that crazy? They hadn't even left the ground yet. And they've already spent an hour talking about how they walked to the plane. So it's really pretty impressive. It, it really is. Okay. So you've given us some insight into the unseen hours on stage. Now I would love to know some of your unseen hours on page and what goes in to, to the magnificent books that you write. It's hard for me to fathom the level of time and effort and time that you spend with the folks that you're writing books about and writing books with. I'll lobby that softball now. Anything you want to share that goes into the books that you write? So I've been lucky. I've done uh, I've done 35, 35 books and been extraordinarily fortunate. You know, 11 of them have become New York Times bestsellers. So of course, my son, we'll go back to my son, who seems to be a, a regular presence in my stories. He points out that that means I've had 24 failures, right? Uh, if I've only had 11 New York Times bestsellers. But the uh, the point for me was always, I chose a path of doing nonfiction books, right? If, if Writing fiction books, you can do them often more quickly, you know, if you're writing some kind of a, a business tale or, you know, business uh, fable, but in doing nonfiction books, you really have to get to know your subject well enough that you often can speak in their language. You can speak as if they speak. And, you know, I did, I did a book with Bubba Watson, the golfer, um, a couple last year. And, you know, and I, my, maybe my favorite line was from his wife, Angie, when she called me and said, I just finished the book and felt like I was listening to Bubba for, for just talk to me for four straight hours. And I thought, you know, that's it. That's what you want. You want someone that cares about them to think it's in their voice. And Bubba should sound different than John Wooden or Walter Payton, right? They should all, as you try to tell the stories, they should all be reflective to their voice. So the unseen hour for me 
in writing books with other subjects is often the part of trying to learn to capture their voice, mm. learn to be able to, to sound like Alan, right? If you give me an opportunity, how do I make sure that when someone reads this, they just really feel like they've just been engaged with you. And if the book sounded like me, the, the partner writer, well, that's, that's not any good. That doesn't do anyone any good. It has to sound like the person I'm working with. And that, that's maybe the thing I love as much as anything about, about putting myself into the preparation portion of writing uh, with someone that, that we'd all want to learn from. I think it's brilliant. First thing is you can tell your son, um, I'm 0 for 2. I've got two books. Neither is a New York Times bestseller. So um, those are, are two failures, but maybe my third one will be a charm. Let, let's just, okay, let's use me as an example. Let's just say I reach some type of iconic status that I'm worth being your 36th subject. What would the process look like for you to really get to know my voice? Like what, you know, I, I would love to learn how you do that because you do that so brilliantly. And I can absolutely, you know, agree with, with Bubba's wife that the books I've read of yours, I haven't read all of them, but the ones I've read, you capture that voice so brilliantly. The real, the real, it's just, it's time, right? I mean, it's a, it's a matter of listening to you. Um, it's getting out of the way which is a hard thing for many of us to do, right? Um, is, to, is to ask a question and then sit back and just absorb and, and look for um, where, do you, uh, where do you lean into maybe some aphorism that might be from, that might reflect where you're from? Uh, where might you use a, a, a saying that, that, is, uh, that, that wouldn't be common to, many, to most other people? And then as you do that and you grow to listen to people and learn from them, um, then coming back to them with questions about some of the root of those sayings. And, and then you learn that it's from a great grandmother who used to, or a grandmother who used to sit and tell me that story. The more, you know, it's, it's truly a, just a, it's, it's a discovery um, journey that I love being on with people. And they often think, gosh, you're like, you're, you're taking me into all these crazy places. Um, but for, but for me, the thing that I love about it is if I can get you so comfortable that you'll just speak, you don't feel like you're, you have to be rehearsed. You don't have to give me the same answer you gave to the seven people who interviewed you yesterday. If I can get you comfortable, then I'll be able to capture you in ways that, uh, that others won't. Okay. Well, that's smart. Let's use the Bubba Watson as an example how long was that time period? Is this something that takes a year? Does it take three years? And then because you are an organized and systemized and, and process-oriented person, is this something where you say, Bubba, we need to have a standing call once a week for an hour and you're, you're kind of interviewing him almost as a journalist or is it you go spend a full three-day weekend with him and it's fully immersive or kind of, kind of piece that together and give us a sure. look at what the process looks like? So to, to, to do exactly what we're talking about, create comfort, right? I don't think you create comfort even over Zoom. I don't think you really get to know somebody well enough over Zoom to do that. So we always begin with a couple of days together, a couple, three days together. And in that situation, the recorder might not, you know, might not even be on for large portions of it because it's, it's just, you know, well, it's learning about each other. It's, a, it's again, I believe in every great life story I've been challenged to tell, 
that you can find between five to seven inflection points, right? Tipping points. If then moments, like if you choose to go left, it would your life might've gone in a different direction, but you chose right. And so identifying those five to seven moments over the course of time with people is really important. Often, one of those moments will be the way you open the book, because that's a really, you're, you're, you're putting a reader in the shoes of somebody who's a superstar by letting them realize that you, the superstar, had to make a major life decision just like they did. So identifying those moments, we, you're right. There's, there is quite the system to it, but, but the conversation often begins in person. I just think we do better there. We'll spend two to three days together, often just, just chatting and getting to know each other better. And then these kinds of calls, Zooms like we're on right now, or, or, or phone calls um, are just far more relaxed. And, and suddenly it's like, I don't think you're the, I don't have to worry about you. Like I have to worry about that person that I've got to call three hours from now from the New York times. And so even though there is a journalistic um, approach to what I'm doing, it's nonfiction writing. Um, I'm limited by the truth. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is you create a slightly easier pathway to conversation by getting to know each other. You smart. I appreciate that. Gosh, I'm just fascinated by this whole world. A few other questions kind of underneath this umbrella. What goes into you deciding who you want to write about or who you want to work with? Is this just kind of a, a Don Yeager bucket list slash fantasy list of people that you think would be really interesting to work with uh, is one question. The second is, have there been some people that you've had fascination with and reached out to that for whatever reason chose not to do a book or chose not to work with you? And then is there anybody on the list right now that you're hoping to work with in the future? So that, that I'll throw wow, that trilogy at question. you. And I can so, remind you of them if needed. No, no, no. That's good. So number one, the answer is is pretty simple. When I I often, now I will tell you, I've made mistakes. Like I've made mistakes where I said, nah, that's a dumb idea that I would never be fascinated enough by that person. I had one, it was really funny. Um, I used to own a steakhouse in Tallahassee where I live. I I've owned a handful of businesses and, and one of them was this really high end steakhouse. And, uh, and one night the mayor of Tallahassee called me on a Sunday afternoon and he said, Hey, is there any way your steakhouse could stay open late tonight? And I was like, well, why? And he goes, well, world wrestling is coming to Tallahassee tonight and the wrestlers hate coming to Tallahassee because after they wrestle on a Sunday night, the only place to eat is Denny's. And I'd like them to come to your restaurant. Would you be willing to stay open? So I said, yes. So I, we stayed open. All my employees were excited because they were going to get to meet all these wrestlers. Yeah. And so I went over there and they're there. And, and this massive human being walks over to me and says, hey, I hear you've written a bunch of books. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I'd really like to write a book. And I snickered and said, well, I'm, I'm really busy, but um, it's nice. I, I wish you the best because it's a great experience. Well, it was The Rock. Um, and he went on and I blew him off and he went on to write four New York Times bestsellers. Uh, and he's, you know, arguably one of the best, one of the most sought after actors in, in Hollywood today. So you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect in any way as to picking my subjects as you, as you, as you can imagine, but I'm a person that if I 
spend enough time with you. And I often don't, I don't say no early. I did there and I learned a big lesson. I try to get to know people who are interested in doing a book. And if I find them fascinating enough for me, then I can make them fascinating enough for you. That's, mm-hmm. that's my standard, right? Oh, I love that. Um, and, but it, but it takes me to get, I have to believe there's a really good book there. Like, I don't just that you tell me there's a good book. There isn't enough. Even if there's a lot of money on the line, I try to say, I need to believe there's a good book there. And and even if someone's just famous, that's not enough of a prerequisite is there's got to be the fascination, you know, curiosity and an interest in a story to tell. So I, I love, I love that that's your, your kind of North star. Well, 60,000 words is a lot of words and a year, which is what the process takes is a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to be a slog and miserable, I I mean, I got, there are other places I'll go make money. Right. So, um, I, it has to be, it has to at least meet a standard of, I gotta, I've got to find a way to be interesting. Um, are there people that I have wanted to do books with that have ultimately said no? Um, yes, one of them, um, but sometimes the saying no turned out to be the best thing in the world for me. Of course. Um, one of them was with uh, a tennis player named Jimmy Connors mm. who um, uh, hired me and we had agreed to do a deal. I went on the road with him to Wimbledon and all this stuff. This is just 15 years ago. So it was after his playing career was over, but while he was still somewhat popular and um, spent several months with him. He asked me to send him some chapters. I did. He asked me to come visit with him. He sits down and he says, Don, I'm reading these chapters. They make me look like a a hole. Um, to which his wife slapped him on the leg and said, Jimmy, you are an a hole, right? <laughs> and he says, Don, I really can't let this happen. I need a book that makes me look more. I, I got to look better than this. And I said, Jimmy, these are your words, your stories, like, you know, to alter it, to make you look better would mean kind of falsifying what you've said and what you stand for. Right. And he, and he says, well, that's what I want. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. And, um, and before the hour was up, he canceled the book project, walked away from it, stiffed me for $40,000 in case you're listening, Jimmy. And, uh, and in that process, uh, I realized that not doing a book with him was actually one of the better things that ever happened to me. Sometimes I, in life, you, you learn a lesson by not doing something. Absolutely. So, and then your third question, ironically, it's also a tennis player. Roger Federer totally fascinates me. Like yeah. I would love, I, anytime you can watch someone perform at his level and never know if they're winning or losing, there's something that happens there's a way that he is conducting himself that I would love to try to understand and explain to others. Cause that's really what a good book does. It explains someone who to others in a way that makes you even find your, find them even more attractive. And I I'm fascinated by Roger Federer. His, his stoicism reminds me of a Tim Duncan that yes. just looking at facial expressions, you can't tell if he's up or he's down, if he's winning, he's winning if he's playing well, if he's not. And, and very similar to Duncan, Federer makes it look so effortless. Mm-hmm. Like he makes tennis look like it's an easy game. And anyone that's ever attempted playing knows that it is not. And, and that you can be running around like a chicken with your head cut off, ra- you know, frazzled and rattled and swinging and grunting. 
and he's just gliding and is so effortless. So, uh, and you know, I, we're, we're recording this, uh, just days after, um, you know, Federer has made the decision that he's not going to play anymore. Right. And I love it. Right. Serena makes that decision and it's a, you know, it's a, it's an international affair, right? I mean, everybody is flying in to watch her last matches. Roger Federer just sends out a press release, you know, saying I'm done. And you just, it, you, the, the two of them, I mean, it perfectly fit the personalities of both of those people, no criticism on either one, but the idea that Federer makes the choice and he just kind of politely says it, um, is, is just who he is, but he is, he's such a world-class talent. I'd love to be able to kind of, again, my, the reason I, I want to do books with people is to understand them. And he's one I'd love to understand. So, so what will that process look like? Will you actually pursue that? Will, will either you or someone on your team reach out? And I'm sure you'll give him a little breathing room to, to soak in a little bit of the retirement first, but, but will, will you actually pursue that and go after that? Or what does that look like? So I have previously, and he's okay. always, you know, I mean, in the, the money that tennis players make it, it's kind of a rounding error to what you'll get paid to write a book. And it just didn't make financial sense for him to give the time away from tennis to the time to, to pay attention to a book. So you're right. I mean, we will at some stage, I'll reach out and just say, Hey, look, I love the opportunity just to talk about it. And if he's interested, hopefully I could talk him into it. For sure. Well, two things. One, I would imagine when you were on the early end of the 35 books and the 11 New York Times bestsellers, it was a little bit of a different pitch than it is now that you've got this unbelievable credibility. Um, so I'd love you to speak on that. And then I probably should have done this research during my unseen hours, but I didn't. Have you been with the same publisher for the vast majority of these? And, and what does that actually look like? Yeah. So I'll go in reverse order. No, I have not. Most. So. Um... One of the things, almost from the beginning, after the first or second book, um, when you know when publishers uh, offered options into your contract, you know uh, we want to be able to option your next book. We want to look at your next book before anybody else does. I had a I had a great agent um, who who taught me to to strike that clause because the truth is I want to be a free agent. I want to be LeBron after every season. Right. <laughs> uh, because if you, if, if you believe enough in yourself and you, and you think you can continue to generate really good content that will sell, then you want to be a free agent after every contract. So that's what we do. So I've, I've done, you know, books with every major publisher there is at this stage. Uh, and the next one, I have no idea who it'll be with, but it will be an opportunity uh, for, for me to sell to someone new possibly, but we, we play the field every time. You're so wise. How has things evolved when you first started and you didn't have the resume or the credibility because you had only done one or two books at that time versus now where, I mean, you are the guy in this space. So, yeah, I think the thing that, that was a real blessing to me was um, early on, I had my hero uh, growing up was a guy named Walter Payton, right? The greatest running back in the history of the game. And Walter actually uh, reached out uh, and asked me if I would come live with him to write his book. Uh, unbeknownst to me, when he made that outreach, I did not know he was dying. I did not know when I arrived. I did. I found out very quickly, but that he knew he was his window of, of life was limited. I had 10 weeks with him. 
um, and got a chance to write his book, Never Die Easy. And in that process, that was this beautiful opportunity, random as it was, that changed my, my life. I mean, changed my trajectory. From that moment on, other athletes would literally look and say, if Walter Payton trusted you, I trust you. You know, it was a, it was a, it was one of the great gifts a human can give another, right? Is to say, I, I rest my hand on your shoulder and I believe because the key to Walter's book was he knew he was not going to be alive when it came out, which meant he had to fully trust that I was going to be a, an absolute representative of his best interest. Cause I could have done things I could have, you know, but I, my, my responsibility was to represent him in a way that would make his family proud for years. And I, I I'm honored to say that I, I remain very, very close with his, his widow and his two children and uh, been at both wedding, been at, been at their weddings, been, you know, I just, I love their family. And it's because this one person changed my life and he did my trajectory. So even before I became kind of famous as a writer, if, if I don't even know if I would call myself that, but I was touched by Walter, which made a difference. My goodness. Well, I will call you famous as a writer and wow, what an extraordinary <laughs> opportunity an extraordinary experience. Uh, uh, man, that's, that's unbelievable. One more question for you under the umbrella of the writing. What does your actual writing process look like? So you go and you spend two or three days with Bubba Watson, maybe the first day or two, there's not much recorded because you're getting to know him and building rapport. Then you're, you're recording some of your conversations. So I know you'll have some transcripts. How do you go from this collage of in-person interviews and Zoom interviews and collecting all of this info to actually putting down on page what it is that we get to read. Do you, do you block so off I, time every day to write? Do you like, what does that look like? Not so much, but what, one thing that I have, I I've done right from the very beginning, that's really been game changing for me was I'm an outline freak. Um, I uh, will spend time with you or with, you know, Bubba or whoever. And after a little bit of time, I'll begin the process of, of, of storylining the entire book. I'll, I'll, I'll create that opening scene, um, whatever it might be based upon conversation. I'll then take us through, um, uh, and I'll try to create some emotional rhythm throughout the book. You know, you don't want too many chapters in a row without, remember I mentioned pivot points, right? Well, you got to make sure those are spread out. Um, and I'm, I literally map the entire book out. And then when I write the outline, I'll even write the opening paragraph and the closing paragraph of every chapter. The reason for that is that I'll know how every chapter ends and flows into the next chapter. And, and by doing that, it means that I might wake up tomorrow morning and we might've just started the book, but I might just be possessed to tell the story about your, your, you know, your Bubba Watson you know, what it was like to adopt uh, a son on the very week that you win the masters for the first time, right? What was it like to have your entire life turned upside down professionally and personally all in the course of seven days? You know, what that chapter may be something I just can't wait to write. And it could be the 15th chapter of the book, but I can write it because I know how it's going to fit with all the other chapters because I've done a really good outline. So, Long before I really start writing, I'm I am spending time in the outline process, 
uh, for the reasons that allow me to never find people talk about writer's block, you know, that, 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 that place where they go and they can't seem to come up with something, the next sentence to write. I don't worry about it. I skip to the next chapter, right? Uh, I, I go wherever my mind is at the time. And I'm always thinking about something that was awesome. <laughs> my goodness. Gosh, that's brilliant and incredibly helpful. I, I love that approach. I love the <laughs> writing the first and last paragraph of each chapter in advance so that they can it's see all about flow. Yeah, it really is. And, and once again, anyone that's had the pleasure of reading your books can, can feel that. I mean, you, you capture your subject's voice brilliantly and there is just this beautiful sequential progression to everything. And that's now, now we know why. So for this last segment, you've been kind enough to share the unseen hours as a speaker, uh, as an author. Now that you've had the chance to be with 35 of these amazing different subjects, what are some of the biggest lessons or things that you learned from them that maybe had uh, a strong impact on you and your life and the way you did things, or maybe things that most casual observers would not be aware of? So for me, one of those, and I'm just, I'm staring at a picture up here on the wall, right, right, right in front of my screen. Maybe the, the one that had the most impact on me was uh, John Wooden, Coach mm -hmm. Wooden, um, who, uh, you know, I just, I, I had the, the beautiful blessing of spending 12 years in a mentoring relationship, which allowed me every other month over 12 years to fly out to California and spend a day with John Wood for 12 years, six times a year oh and um, uh, 500 hours of conversation, crazy. But Coach Wooden used to regularly talk to me about um, who was in my inner circle, who did I surround myself with, who, how, how attentive was I being to who I was giving my time to. Because his his argument always was, your inner circle is not who you hope you spend your time with. It is who you spend your time with. And um, and the more I became aware of and became, became thoughtful of the importance of how you carry the, the, uh, the process of others or the thoughts of others into whatever you're going to do next, the more I became aware of um, how, how, what coach was teaching me, which mm -hmm. was the best place. You know, we talk about what are you able to control or what, and what are your controllables and what are your non-controllables? Um, one of the things that is completely in your control is who you give your time to. Mm. And I had long ago in my life kind of given that away to just whoever happened to like me, right? I wanted to be liked. So I wanted to be around people that liked me. And that wasn't always the best choice. And I, and so that lesson from coach about constantly looking and thinking, wow, am I surrounded by people who have a vision as I do, who want to, who want to achieve some of the things that I want? Am I, am I able to help inspire them to get there? And can they help me do the same? Um, or am I an anchor around their neck or are they an anchor around mine? I became far more attentive to my relationships and it, uh, it changed my life. Uh, I bet. I mean, it's, you just gave me the goosebumps in, in sharing that. And I mean, you're, you're talking about not only one of the most iconic sports figures, but 
I mean, I would go as far as to call him a philosopher. I mean, when you, you look at, you know, the, the success pyramid and, and so many of his quotes and things that are used, not just on social media, but are the fabric of the way people run businesses. I mean, it, it's amazing. And for you to have that much quality time with him, um, how did that mentorship even begin? What, what type of, I mean, how, how did that even initiate? So one of my um, one of my best friends in the world, I just was talking to him right before we got on this podcast, actually, was the basketball coach at Louisiana State for many years, Dale Brown. Oh, of course. Um, Dale, Dale is actually best man in my wedding. Uh, he is godfather to both of my children. We are just, I wrote his book 30 years ago, and we became best friends after that. And we talk, we talk multiple times a week. Love him. And Dale Brown and John Wooden were very close. And so I knew Coach Wooden a little bit, but I had heard that Dale's number one protege, Shaquille, who was playing for the Lakers, was actually regularly going out and spending time with John Wooden. So Shaq, 26 years old, making horrible movies like Kazam, um, and John Wooden, right, who you can't imagine never watching Kazam, were spending time together. And I thought, what an incredible opportunity that would be to understand. Yeah. Uh, so I asked what it was and Shaq said it was a mentoring relationship. And I thought 26 year old Shaq's being mentored by 88 year old John Wooden. Can I sit in? And they let me. Oh. And at the end of the, uh, the, the afternoon together, uh, I got up and I realized they never once talked about basketball. They talked about being a better leader, better teammate, better father. And it was just really amazing stuff. And Shaq had come with all these questions. It was so good, right? No, I mean, none of which you would like project into that relationship. Right. And um, so we got up and I looked at Coach Wood and I said, Coach, you know, you're so amazing, right? How does someone get mentored by you? Like, how, how does a mentoring relationship begin with someone like you? And he goes, you ask. And I said, how many people ask? And he said, not as many as you might think. He said, most people never ask because they're sure the answer is going to be no. So they just don't ask. Mm -hmm. And he said, and they, they take themselves out of the equation way too early. And I was like, wow, thank you, coach. So I left. And a month later, I called him. I said, coach, I felt like as we were standing there that I was supposed to ask. And he said, what took you so long? <laughs> and from there, we started. Literally, we picked a day. I would fly to California We'd open at a breakfast restaurant. We'd end at a dinner. And um, and then we before the day was out, we would pick the next date. And every time I would show, my job was to show up with questions. And the second I ran out of questions, the day was over. Mm. So as you might imagine, I came up with a lot of questions um, because I wanted so much to learn from him. My goodness. I mean, there, there's two halves of that, that that are so beautiful. And I think a, a perfect bow tie for us to put an end on this conversation. I mean, one is, is his openness to serve, his willingness to send the proverbial elevator back down and to help people that, that he knows that he can bestow wisdom into. Um, but at the same time is your commitment. I mean, it, this, this is massive time. And I assume you're paying for your own flight and hotel. So you're putting in money, uh, you know, and, and time to do that. And you didn't do it once or twice and think, all right, I asked some good questions. I mean, you did that for over a decade. So your level of commitment mm -hmm. and your level of continued fascination and curiosity to be able to have a list of questions every other month for 12 straight years is, is absolutely remarkable. I, I think that's so beautiful that you guys were able to do that. And uh, my, my goodness, I, 
would would love to get my hands on some of those hours of uh, of tapes. That's that's brilliant. I'll tell you, it was incredible. But one of the keys was I actually came up with a theme for every like one one month. I'll never forget. I mean, my theme was I wanted to ask you about the thirteenth player. How do you keep the thirteenth player on your team engaged? Mm-hmm. Right, they're never going to play. They're even in practice, they'd be lucky to get much time. And yet in the way basketball was played back then in a couple of years, they could be an important part of your team. So you can't afford to lose them as freshmen, even though they're the 13th player in your team, how do you keep them engaged? And so the way we did it was we went through the 13th player on his roster for the last 20 years of his, and he remembered every one of them and he could tell you what he did to keep them engaged. And you could see your a couple of years later how many of them turned into something because he didn't let the 13th player get away. Mm. And what a great lesson is that for us, right? In our in our business lives. How often we look around our room and uh, that's the person that never talks in meetings, and they've become our 13th player and we let them get away. And that means they go on to star for somebody else. So what well, it was such a great lesson. My goodness. Well, man, I, I can't thank you enough. I feel like I could keep you for hours because I'm so fascinated and I'm doing the best I can not to put you on the spot to see if you'll mentor me because I'll fly to Tallahassee every other month just to learn this type of stuff from you. You don't want to you, you don't want to spin that. Tallahassee is expensive to get to. <laughs> but no, uh, man, this was unbelievable. I, I really appreciate uh, on a deeper level, I appreciate your friendship, your mentorship, your leadership, uh, for you raising the bar so high for the rest of us, both on stage and on page, but especially for your time today and, and sharing so openly, man, this was a lot of fun. So thank you. Alan, so much. I'm a huge fan. I would, I would, I'd give anything to, to spend more time with you as well. So thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game and provided useful insight on how you can maximize the unseen hours. If you found this episode helpful, would you be open-minded to supporting the show? Would you be kind enough to share it with a friend or colleague? Would you take 30 seconds and leave us a rating and review? Those two things help support the show's mission and message more than you realize. And don't ever forget, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. If I can ever be of service to you or your organization, please visit allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com for a variety of speaking and coaching resources.